we are starting today with a pretty major announcement, and it has to do with how family doctors in this province are going to be compensated. And just a few moments ago, we heard from the health minister. He was answering a question about this new payment schedule, which we are going to talk about. But the specific question was, will this lead to more family doctors working in BC, and will it lead to more access for those who do not currently have a family doctor? Uh, I think I think the answer is yes and no, Vaughn. We know from the changes we've made already that uh, that these these uh, new arrangements are going to increase the attractiveness of uh, family medicine and of family practice and of full-service family practice. We've seen that already with our new-to-practice contracts. We've seen that in the work we've done with our stabilization fund. All right, that was just some of the response from Health Minister Adrian Dix. Joining us now is Richard Zussman, Global News Journalist based at the Legislature. Richard, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to talk about this. I also would have been happy to talk about Halloween too, Jill, but we can save that for next year. Maybe. <laughs> or, or we can we can save that. We'll, we'll talk doctors first, and then and then Halloween. <laughs> maybe. Um, well, let us look at this because it's a new payment model. And I listened. I heard your questions and some of the other questions at uh, the news conference. But what do we know about this model and how we're going to afford it? Yeah. So the model is a massive shift in terms of the way that family doctors are paid. And we've heard it, you know, they've been on your show, they've been in the news, doctors have been worried about this payment model for a long time. And the big reason for it has been the model did not address a lot of the work family doctors did. So administrative work not covered off uh, by their current salaries, complex care patients those that take a long time per visit, everyone will know when they go into a family doctor, there's that sign on the door saying, we only have time to talk about one issue because of those tight uh, scheduling issues. Uh, this contract addresses those concerns. It also addresses the rising costs that we're seeing, especially when it comes to leases or rents in Metro Vancouver and here in Victoria. So those are the big issues, and all of those are addressed as part of the deal. And you mentioned the cost. It comes with a hefty cost. Uh, the estimates from the province are around $700 million over the three years of this deal. But there are other places where there's going to be financial pressure on the system as well. It means that family doctors are going to be paid substantially more. So the average now, and again, it's a bit complicated based on, you know, the types of patients doctors see and where they live. The average is about $250,000 a year now. It goes up to $385,000 and factors in allowing them to cover those costs. To qualify for that salary, to qualify for this new agreement, a doctor must work 1,680 hours full-time per year to see about 1,250 patients of average complexity. Uh, that's up for some over, you know, five, six, seven hundred patients and have 5,000 encounters visits each year. And by increasing the salary, Jill, what you do is you are getting it closer to par with what these trained doctors have in the hospital system or potentially a specialist and you will encourage them with this new salary to move out of the hospitalization system and back into family care where we know there are a million people right now in bc without a family doctor 
And Richard, did they address this? And I know uh, the, the head of doctors of BC was at this news conference, and we're actually going to be talking to a family doctor a bit later on in the show. But did they talk about the fact that one of the big issues has been from doctors is the workload itself, that they're seeing patients, they're doing paperwork well into the night, they're running what is essentially a small business. So, so does this ease that or or it just it compensates more for what is already a pretty hectic schedule yeah so it compensates for that work and obviously each family doctor will have different experiences so i look forward to hearing from the family doctor that you're hearing from around some of the concerns that they have Uh, but it is about better compensating and also providing additional support so this is part of a whole big plan that the province has around delivering care One of the changes we know is coming that was previously announced is giving pharmacists more power to prescribe. So you take away largely some of those menial tasks from doctors, not those urgent, pressing medical needs, and you pass that over to pharmacists who can help take that burden on themselves. There's also, as part of this, greater integration uh, with nurse practitioners, So once again, you take away some of that pressure on the doctor and you provide more support through uh, uh, nurse practitioners as well as specialized health workers that provide services like mental health or substance use therapy. All of this gives greater support to the whole network. So it eases some of that burden and all of that uh, gives the doctors more time to see more patients. And that should alleviate some of the pressure on the system in terms of all those people that need doctors. And you mentioned this as well. So the the incremental cost increase of about $708 million by the end of the third year, that's the government figure that they put out today. Uh, it would seem if this was such a, an easy fix, they, they would have done this <laughs> a long time ago. So did they mention or say, where is this $708 million? Where is it coming from? Yeah, so... I always think about that, Jill, when governments announce massive announcements that have been thorns in their side for so long. I think back to the enhanced care model, no-fault car insurance at ICBC, right? All of a sudden, it goes from hemorrhaging cash to a solution. I think part of this is long-term negotiations with the doctors who part of this, they were uncomfortable with giving more powers to pharmacists, giving more powers to nurse practitioners, But largely, the doctors are highly supportive of being part of the integrated network of care. Where the money comes from will be part of the robust health care budget, which occupies a huge amount of our provincial budget. Uh, Again, it's more cost pressures on the province, but this is the singular issue that's dominating now. The biggest problem this provincial government has is helping to address the crisis in health care. And so whatever it costs, seemingly, is what they're going to spend to help solve it. So, you know, there's no tax increases or anything tied to this. It just will be part of the overall financial outlook. And we know the economy here in B.C. is bouncing back from COVID. It is stronger than expected. So it's a it will, they'll sort of find a way to pay for all of this through general revenues. The last thing that's worth mentioning as well, John, a big part of this, is starting next year, uh, the province will be launching uh, what's being described as a rostering system. So if you don't have a family doctor, if you're unattached and you want one, starting next year, you will be able to get your name on that list, and they can start looking to place you in your community with a family doctor 
Minister Dix was asked about this a bunch of times. How Do you have any benchmarks? How many people do you want to place? He wouldn't provide any numbers. He would only take shots at the B.C. Liberals who promised to provide a family doctor for every British Columbian, and clearly that did not pan out. But, you know, we at least this is a start to getting a sense of how many people want to be rostered, where do they want to be rostered, what sort of critical care needs do they have, and how does the province then work to, you know, extending beyond this, recruit more doctors, retain more doctors, and, and, and place them in the communities where they're needed. Yeah, I was wondering about that too, and, and I think others as well, hoping for a bit more information other than just next year this will start. Did he even pinpoint it down to perhaps when next year? No, and they have got to listen back to the tape. Uh, we were doing BC one heads, but we were also listening to the press conference. So not all the information came into my brain, Jill. Parts of it did. All right. Um, but, but, we, but I will listen back. Then. No. From all the information we were provided, we had a technical briefing this morning as well as the press conference. But it was the dominant question today, right? Because that's what the public wants to know. Those listening right now want to know. I don't have a family doctor. When can I get one? And the province really did not provide any specifics on exactly how quickly that will work. And just because you put your name in a rostering system next year, the spring or the summer, it doesn't mean there'll be availabilities immediately. But it does stop that whack-a-mole game where if you lose your family doctor, you go on the phone and call every family doctor's office in your community and ask them to take you, which is not a particularly equitable or efficient system. So the rostering will take away from that sort of game that so many British Columbians are forced to play now just to get the care that they need. All right. Uh, sounds good. We are going to talk about this uh, more coming up. Uh, Richard, before I let you go then, we did say we talk Halloween. What are your kids going as and what's the best Halloween candy? So the best Halloween candy is that box that has M&M's, Twix, and Mars hands down. I like all three of those. They're sort of my Mount Rushmore of candy. And the kids are going as... So we tried to get our little guy to go as a lumberjack, but he's calling it a chainsaw killer. So it's dressed as a lumberjack, but there's blood on his face and his chainsaw. And I'm going to butcher the name, but my daughter is dressing up as Hatsune Miku. She is a Vocaloid from Japan. Very popular in many places outside of circles that I think you and I run in, Jill. Mm-hmm. But uh, she wore those outfits at Comic-Con and lots of people there wanted to take pictures with her. So clearly there's a demographic out there uh, that thinks that's a very cool costume. And I think it's pretty cool, too. So that's what we will, they will be going out as. And I'm dressed up as Mark from the show Severance, which is basically a suit and tie with a covering on my work badge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one. And thank you so much. Uh, Happy Halloween. Thanks, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, two groups are now challenging Canada's federal government rule, the banning of the import of dogs from more than 100 countries. The groups saying these are some of the most vulnerable regions for dogs that are adoptable and that the ban, which went into effect at the end of September, is in fact a death sentence for many of these dogs. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Camille Labchuk, Executive Director at Animal Justice. Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What specifically uh, is in this court challenge as far as what are, what are the groups asking for? Well, Animal Justice and Soy Dog Canada, which is a rescue organization bringing dogs to Canada from Thailand, uh, we're challenging the federal government over this decision to ban rescue dogs because we're saying two things, essentially, that it's an unreasonable decision um, it's, it's not something that's based in science and evidence and, and 
you don't need a complete ban on rescue dogs in order to prevent dog rabies from spreading in Canada. Um, in fact, no other Western country has a similar ban. And we're also saying that the government was wrong by failing to consult with the dog rescue groups who will be affected by, by this ban. Um, none of them were, were contacted beforehand, and they were completely blindsided when the ban went into effect. And it's already forcing many of them to completely stop their activities, um, which, you know, is, is really sad, but mostly sad for the dogs who are left to die on the streets, die in the dog meat trade, or die in war-torn regions because they don't have a, a lifeline to Canada. Do you have any idea then how many dogs were coming into Canada before this ban and, and how many might we think now since even though it's only been in place it's about a month, uh, how many dogs were coming in before this and now haven't been coming in? Well, you know, we don't have a great sense because the government doesn't track these numbers and dog rescue groups operate independently, but we believe it's likely hundreds or even over a thousand or more per year. So if we look at uh, just one month, that's very likely at least 100 dogs who, who were denied the chance to come to Canada um, and denied the chance of the second chance at life. And when you talk about uh, rabies, and that was the reason given from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency saying that the ban was needed to prevent the spread of dog rabies in Canada, what do other countries do then? If there's not similar bans in other Western countries that, that have dogs coming in, what do they do to make sure that rabies doesn't spread? Yeah, so other countries have adopted science-based measures recommended by the World Organization for Animal Health. And this includes things like making sure dogs are vaccinated with a Canadian-approved rabies vaccine. So that's important, a strong vaccine that can produce antibodies. And then giving them an antibody blood test. Uh, You know, we're all at the stage of COVID-19 where we know a lot about vaccinations and antibodies. And you can tell if an animal or a human has developed antibodies to a certain virus by testing their blood. So uh, the WHO says that vaccinations are basically 100% um, effective in preventing rabies in, in dogs. And for that extra layer of assurance, we can do a blood test just to make sure that vaccine took hold. And those are the types of measures that other countries have that are working very well for them. Right. And, and doesn't the United States, though, have a similar ban or does it not have a warning for many of the same countries as far as allowing dogs into that country? You know, the U.S. actually implemented a similar ban last year, but then they rescinded it in, in June. Um, when they introduced the ban, they intended it only ever as a temporary measure to get some structures in place. Um, and then when they rescinded it, they, they now require things like antibody testing, which is what we're suggesting for Canada. So that's why we're so surprised as an animal protection organization and as a dog rescue organization that is suing in this case. Uh, we're so surprised that Canada is this far offside our largest trading partner and the other Western uh, democracies that we collaborate with. Right, okay. Then, but are dogs still allowed in Canada? Could you still import a dog from the United States? You could bring in a dog from the United States. So so the 100-plus countries that are subject to this ban are the countries where there's believed to be rabies in existence. Um, Canada, the United States, most Western European countries, for instance, we're not on that list. So it really is the world's most vulnerable countries. And these places tend to have less developed animal welfare infrastructure than countries like Canada or the U.S. do. And so that's what's so heartbreaking about this ban is that for for some of these dogs, there's no shelters for them to go to. Um, There's no rescue networks locally that can adopt them out. Canada really might be their only lifeline.
Right. Do you see that perhaps would rescue groups then go the route of if you can still import dogs into the United States from these countries, as long as you meet those requirements that you mentioned, would rescue groups then could they possibly go the route of if a dog comes into the U.S., say through Washington state and just bring them across the border or bring them to Canada from the U.S.? You know, I think that's a route that some of them are now exploring because this really is a tragic situation and it's forcing them to either shut down operations or adapt. Uh, The tragedy, though, is that it's so much more expensive to go to an intermediary place first to do a quarantine in the U.S. And these are, you know, these are groups that are Canadian-run. They're volunteer-run. They're charities. They fundraise for support and, and they rely on volunteers to carry out that work. And they have connections with other countries where the dogs come from. Um, but they don't necessarily have those networks in the United States. So it's asking these groups to take on a huge, huge burden um, that they weren't already, you know, faced with. I think it's difficult enough to do dog rescue and raise the money and find the volunteers to do that work uh, without being asked to bring your dogs to an intermediate country. So that's why we're challenging this ban, and that's why we hope the courts will agree with us and uh, agree that there's other ways to protect Canadians and protect dogs from rabies. And do you think, would the organizations then, the various dog rescues, would they be willing then to pick up the cost of the antibody testing? Or if Canada, say, did rescind the ban and went to more of a model like we're seeing in the United States, would it be the rescue groups then that would pick up those costs? Yeah, and the reality is that most, um, a lot of rescue groups in Canada actually do those antibody tests already. Um, many of them have very, very high standards. And, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, these are people who are dog lovers and they want those dogs to be protected and uh, to be safe from rabies and for humans who adopt them to be safe too. So there's quite a lot of that going on already. But I would say it's animal justice's position that any antibody tests that that need to be done um, should be paid for by the federal government. Um, You know, we have this situation involving biosecurity and disease threats in Canada, and we sometimes implement border controls for a variety of reasons. Usually that's to impact the farming industry and help farmers get their products to market. And when that occurs, governments are very willing to give bailouts to farmers so that their industries aren't affected and they don't lose profits. So I just think it's fundamentally unfair in this case that we're doing something to protect the public. But um, we might be asking these volunteer charity rescue organizations who rely on donations to pick up the cost. Uh, Although it might strengthen the argument, wouldn't it, if the group said, look, it won't cost the government anything, just let us do this and we'll make it so it's safe and we can make this happen. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly not the the first request being made to the government, but I I do think it's important to note that, um, you know, when when industry is involved, uh, government's very happy to pick up the tab. And, you know, in this case, where these volunteer-run charities are doing work out of the goodness of their hearts to advance animal welfare and and simply find homes for dogs, I do think it's fundamentally unfair that we don't see that same level of support and that instead of consultation, we just see this blanket policy imposed without any regard to the dogs. So I hope the government will shift on this, either because of the court case um, or because they come to a better decision on their own. But I think it's important that this decision not be allowed to stand. Uh, So the filings uh, have been made in federal court. Do you get any sense of the time of this or timing of this or what's going to happen next or when? Well, the next, the next steps involve providing evidence and speaking with um, government counsel on the case. It's always really difficult to predict, predict these things when it comes to court cases, so um, I wouldn't tell anyone to hold their breath uh, for any time soon. But, um, you know, I, what I can say is that this is a really important issue, and it's affecting dogs literally every, every single day who can't come to Canada and are likely dying in shelters or being hit by cars in the streets or starving to death. So 
for us and for the dog rescue organizations to do this work, it's a really, it's a really high priority. And like you said, too, I would imagine the longer this goes, the more at risk of these organizations closing down. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they rely on the generosity of the public to do this work. They rely on a network of adoption volunteers, of foster volunteers, often of flight volunteers. So I'm sure many listeners right now have been in that position where they've seen a friend post on Facebook and say, hey, do you know anyone going down to the Dominican Republic and coming back in the next month or so? We need to get these dogs back to Canada. Um, that's a really common way that Canadians have helped support this rescue network and helped open their, um, their arms and their homes to dogs. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's really important to a lot of people to see this, this move um, overturned. All right. Well, we will be watching what happens uh, with the federal court case. Camille Labchuk, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on this. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Well, we started the show today talking about the fact that family doctors in B.C. are getting a significant raise. This is all part of the province's new compensation model, part of the plan to address the crisis in our health care system. The provincial government saying now a full-time family doctor could be paid about $385,000 a year. That's an increase from the current $250,000 and this is under a new three-year physician master agreement and it was reached with doctors of BC last week. So we wanted to check in with a doctor to get more response and reaction to this. Dr. Anna Wolak is on the line with us now, a family physician as well an assistant professor at UBC. Dr. Wolak, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you for having me. I know the details are still kind of coming out and we're getting a better idea on what this agreement looks like. But what is your response to what we know about this deal so far? Well, I think when, and like all the other physicians who I've spoken with as well, when the deal first came out and we got the details presented to us, a lot of us were like, whoa, this 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 looks good. It addresses a lot of the things that we had asked for, which was, recognition of time we spend with patients, recognition of the time we spend doing patient care that does not involve the patient. So things like reviewing charts or reviewing lab results, reviewing pap smear results, all of that. And it also incentivizes um, people for carrying a panel of patients. So incentivizing longitudinal care. So all in all, we are all very cautiously optimistic because everybody we still don't know all the details but it's the initial impression is you know this this looks good you sounded surprised there in that (laughs) i think you and maybe some other doctors weren't expecting this yeah it's i mean this has been i know a lot of it has been in the public for easily the last six, nine months, but this has been going on for years, this fight for recognition and to be paid equitably. So for, and we've had multiple iterations of the physician master agreement come out where we have been disappointed. I think this is the third one since we've all started to recognize how badly family physicians are paid. So a lot of people weren't expecting much. And there were even talks about people who were going to use today as if this doesn't look good, I will close up shop. Um, so there, there was a lot hanging on the announcement today. So we had hope and we had very guarded optimism about it, but, and we had hope. And so 
there there is some surprise, yes. But it's happy surprise. That's uh, that is good. Uh, what do you think it will do though when we talk about? So it is a significant bump in what a full time family doctor can earn in a year. And like you said, it's being paid for a lot of those things that doctors do that isn't direct patient care. But what does that mean for workload? Because that's something else we've been hearing from doctors is they're seeing patients all day. They're doing paperwork well into the night. Is it a is it a sustainable model? I suspect, knowing a lot of my colleagues and knowing myself, the, the how we work is not going to change. A lot of us are still going to be working well into the night. A lot of us are still going to be doing the reviews outside of, of patient hours. We won't be working a traditional eight, like eight to five shift sort of thing. But at least it's compensated. <laughs> and that's right. one thing. And one of the other things, though, that we have to be aware of is this model from what we can tell, we still have to pay overhead out of what we are earning. Um, but at least that addresses that other concern that we had that no matter how much we work, um, we still can't afford to keep the doors open. Now, if they do give us this bump and if the numbers as they present to us do work out, then there may be a bit more, there'll be a, a bit, there'll be a bit more, more incentive to keep going it's it's not as if we're working for nothing or not or we're just doing the paperwork and just seeing a hundred patients to to keep the doors open now it's like we can afford ourselves to be able to do the patient care that that we want to do and the other thing is if this incentivizes people to stay in bc family practice or to come to bc family practice then the number of patients we will need to be seeing per day might be lessened as we're able to spread the like spread the load around, so to speak. Right. But if you're still paying your overhead costs out of gross income, doesn't that mean you do need to see more patients and keep that number up to get the gross income to cover those costs, which are, are well, very expensive? Well, one of the things is that as it is today, any work I do without seeing a patient is unpaid. So if I'm sitting and I'm charting or I'm looking up test results or I'm reviewing all of that, that's like hour per, they said you can do, and for every hour of patient face-to-face time, you can expect at least another 20 or 30 minutes of unpaid paperwork. Now that unpaid paperwork will be paid. So that should help with the overhead costs. Right, okay. So makes, yeah, so it's not as, the the gross numbers make it sound like it's a dramatic race. Like none of us are going to be going off and retiring anytime soon because we still have businesses to run. But this will this will significantly make us a bit more comfortable in what we're doing and, and take a lot of the stress out of there and make it so we're not burning the candles on three ends. Like, you know, there's the work, there's work-life balance, and there's actually keeping the doors open. Right. Uh, will this change? Do you think there was uh, talk as well? And I know this came up during the news conference that uh, people will know when you go to your family doctor, if you have a family doctor, it's often and oftentimes there are signs saying one issue per visit because you've only got a certain amount of time. Does this change that so that doctors will be able to spend more time with a patient? So I, I don't know the exact details, but from what I understand, we will be able to spend um, to spend more will be paid for spending the time with the patients. I mean, a lot of that 
um, limitation on time as well sometimes is also on what a doctor can actually handle in in a particular particular time frame. If you come to a doctor and you throw 10 items at them, it's better to spread the 10 items over, say, three or four visits so that each item is dealt with appropriately as opposed to um, uh, just scratching the surface of all 10. So part of that problem is, I mean, there still will be appointment times. There still will be, but the appointment times might be a bit longer now because we will be compensated. So rather than six-minute slots, people might be able to do 15-minute slots. You might be able to cover two or three um, other two or three other issues rather than just the one issue. So it won't be a free-for-all. You can come to your doctor with a laundry list of 20 items, but it might help ease the pressure on that. Right. Okay. Uh, one of the other issues as well, and again, for people that don't have a family doctor, and the health minister was asked this and, and didn't really give a, a concrete answer, but it was, how can we be sure that this funding model will in fact uh, attract doctors to BC and will retain doctors? Will it lead to people who don't have a family doctor getting one? And we now know there's going to be this roster set up that will try and match people with family doctors. Do you think that this will help that people who have been without a doctor for however long uh, a period of time they will get one? If this model looks as good, it works out to be as good as it looks on initial paper now, then what it's going to do is it's going to incentivize people to come back to, to family practice. It will, those people who say have just gone to purely walk-in or have just gone to purely telemedicine or maybe even the hospitalist, it may attract them back. It will stop people from leaving, not just the province, but leaving even just leaving family practice to go to other models of, um, of medicine and medical care, for example. Um, and then the other thing, the biggest key to that is, and I've said this as well, there's no point in trying to attract people here because even if you improve credentialing and attract all these people here, they're not going to stay because the model for payment isn't very good. But if this model is as good as we think it is, then we will have, we, we will be more able to recruit people and get them to stay. And the residents, and they're a big part of this, our residents are going to look at it more favorably. They're going to see their mentors are going to be happier. There are people who are going to be here to mentor them. And it may it will look a bit more promising for them. And therefore, longitudinally in the long term, there will be more doctors here to see more people on the list and to participate in that rostering system. Uh, the minister also made a comment during the news conference, uh, and he was kind of talking about the successes as well of the urgent care centers and some of the other uh, things that have been put in place. But uh, everything, or perhaps not everything, but uh, certainly there have been issues raised about the urgent care centers not working the way they were intended. Do you think that this plan, again, if it plays out, if it works the way it's it's supposed to, will it uh, lessen the need for centers like that? I would like to see the urgent care, uh, the, the urgent care centers be actual urgent care centers, not be a stepping stone to get into primary care or a glorified walk-in clinic. And the hope is that 
if we do have more family physicians staying in family practice in BC, there there is a place for urgent care urgent care clinics in our system. Absolutely, they're too sick to see um, a walk-in, but not sick enough for emergency room, and that's where the urgent care system plays in. And they they have their places, but they are not a substitution for primary care. And that's why this injection of funding into keeping the family practice system going and keeping it as robust as it can be is what's going to save save the system. And it's not using the urgent primary care centers as as a as a substitution for the family doctor. There's no substitution for the family doctor. So that's why this injection of money is most welcome. Is there anything missing, do you think, in this agreement? I mean hard to say right now because the devil is in the details, and we still, it's its only been out for, what, five hours that we've <laughs> this, so we're still, people are still pouring over it, but overall, the mood is good. So there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of guarded optimism, and hopefully, hopefully this comes through fruition. All right, Dr. Wolak, always appreciate your time on the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, okay. Thank you so much.